every haunted place has a story with a dark past. This is Ghost Encounters Podcast. Due to the graphic and violent nature of the things discussed on this episode, listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, all you spooky people, to the third episode of the first season of Ghost Encounters Podcast. I am paranormal investigator Justin Torok. I'm Eric Ledbetter, the medium of the group. And I am Kayla Bolash, your spooky sister. We have a very special guest today. She is a serial killer enthusiast. She's very knowledgeable about the paranormal. She is one of my best friends. Please welcome Jordan Balterson. <laughs> Jordan, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say because I don't know you. And I see a whole bunch of notes. Yes. And so, like, you're a mystery wrapped in a riddle, and I can't wait to hear what you Why don't you explain a little bit about yourself? Why don't you explain, like, how you got into being so fascinated by serial killers, and why don't you explain what it is that you do for a living? Okay, so I'll start with what I do for a living. So I'm a histotechnologist. I um, work with tissues, so anything that ranges from biopsies to, like, limbs. Legs. Cool. We get legs, we get arms, hands, whatever. Traumatic, non-traumatic. Oh, like, not so, attached to people. No, they're like in little biohazard bags. Oh, no. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, so, um, yeah, but that's what I do when I cut it for pathologists to look at, like for cancer, stuff like that. Very cool. Interesting. I like it. Cuts flesh every day. You're changing the world. Yeah, but originally that's not my career path. I wanted to go into forensic psychology. Okay. Because I had a fascination with Charles Manson at like a really young age. It's fine. I was obsessed with Jeffrey Dahmer from like the age of 10. So, you know what? That makes sense. Yeah. It happens. I see it. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, so I wanted to do that. I always wanted to figure out how they tick, figure out how they work into like figuring out their brain and what they do. So that was one thing that I really, really was interested in for a long time. I love that. Yeah. I switched, went to school for biology. Here I am. There you are. are. Have you had a lot of like experience or research on like the serial killer mind and stuff like that? Have you done a lot of that stuff? Not really. Okay. Um, I'm just now into like crime, so I get into like figuring out like how many people they killed or you know details of that and what happened after. Some of that stuff is really intense, and there's a lot of common themes throughout a lot of them, which I think is pretty Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. 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 I like seeing the similarities between everybody, childhood trauma, head trauma. It's always the head yeah, trauma. Always, there's always those two things. That yep. Kinda make that it's always happen. the head trauma. You disrupt like the frontal lobe. Forget about it. Your kid's killing someone. Well, it's also <laughs> like the oh there's God. this similarity to um, shooters. Yeah. You know, like there's yeah. sort of like some sort of traumatic the pathology. Yeah. Yeah. It's, really yeah. Interesting it's insane. So. Yeah. But uh, so what I do want to do is ask every guest that comes on, what was your first? I know you've been on an investigation with me, and we'll talk about that in another episode. But what was your first ever ghost encounter? So I used to live in Hellertown, um, and I want to say I was in second grade. It may have even been before that. Um, It was late at night, maybe like 2 a.m., and we heard something. It sounded like keys falling down the steps or something like falling. You know, it definitely, like, it went down the steps. Like, it sounded like bum, 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 bum. And, um... My dad woke everybody up, got us all in one room, and um, he took his Louisville slugger and went through the whole house looking for <laughs> I love that. something that was there, and nothing was there. Wow. So that was the first one. And then maybe a couple months after that, my Aunt Kelly moved in, and she was home alone one night. We were probably out, all of us doing sports, whatever you do as kids. And um, we had this 
It's not a music box. You twist the bottom and it spins, and it like played creepy, eerie music. What was Lovely. On, what was on top and what did it play? It was so on top. It was a little boy that was holding an umbrella. No, and it looked like <laughs> it looked like rain was falling, and uh, it's saying raindrops keep falling on my head. So um, I have it. I should have probably brought it. You should have. I could have twisted it. Yeah, I could have twisted it. Showed you, but uh, it was so it used to creep her out so bad that she would put it in the cabinet in the bathroom, like underneath, and um, it started playing on its own one night. She hauled ass out of there and didn't right. come back until we were back, wow. and she refused to stay there after that. Like. Until we were home, like any time if we left, she left. She found something to do. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's fine. I know everyone else in your family also had stuff happen, and your dog would just stare at a certain corner of the house, right? Just stare. Yeah. Right? Nothing was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Sadie, my boxer. Stop. My dog Sadie would always stare down the hallway at a yeah. specific spot. Yeah. Well, so did Kelsey. Okay. Yeah, but <laughs> same name, Eric. <laughs> my dog Sadie. What I love about your stories is that your whole family experienced it. Yeah. Because a lot of times it's like yes. one right. person like and one, nobody believes you. Or right. Yep. One person hears or sees something and no one believes, but like yeah. your whole family. And my dad is a big skeptic. Yeah. Like he's super I was gonna ask. Edge. Like he yeah. doesn't play around. Like he immediately thought if he heard something, it was somebody. It was something. When he grabbed a bat, he's pretty badass. Yeah. Like, so what, after that all happened, like what does he say like to this day? What was the noise to him? He is like, it could be this or it could be okay. that. He's, he's one, one of those. those. Yeah. But like he was creeped out like you know it scared the crap out of him so and my mom's all doom and gloom she's into the weird stuff so she naturally is like it's a ghost (laughs) because it is yeah (laughs) so we're gonna get into this episode and the majority of this episode is going to be about charles manson and murders he committed and some of the hauntings that have now taken place as a result so for those of you listening uh we are we record this a week in advance so the day we're recording this is now August 9th. Today marks the 52nd anniversary of the Manson family murders. Which is weird because we didn't plan that we at did all. Not no, plan this was actually supposed to be recorded last week. That's so crazy. It's just really strange. Yeah, so you're listening to this a week later, but we're actually recording this on the 52nd anniversary of the murders. I thought that was pretty cool. Spooky. Yeah, a little spooky. So cool. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, the bulk of this is going to be about Manson and the murders, some hauntings that have taken place. Uh, let's go back to the beginning. Who wants to start off? I mean, I know Charles Manson was one of California's longest-running inmates. What was what was he doing before the Manson family became a thing? Anyone know? Who, like, who can tell me? Well, I mean, like... I know, like, I, to tell you? I can tell you, like, what I know as a mainstream. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm really anxious to see, like, what you know as someone who's not really, like, yeah. deep into this kind of stuff. Probably nothing, and you're probably going to correct me a lot because all I know is stuff you see in the movies and, you know, a couple of the big things that, like, Quentin Tarantino just did a film on it and stuff like that. Yeah. Which was, a, it was exaggerated and it wasn't the real ending, but, um, I mean, I know basically Charles Manson had this commune, mostly of women, and it was um, really sexually charged, almost like a sex cult kind of thing, from what I know, and then um, kind of encouraged people to go out and do his work, which was murder, and then sent people out. And, and what I, if I'm wrong, correct me, but he never actually murdered anybody. Nope. Yeah. Which I think is crazy. Charles Manson is not a serial killer. Right. He's a cult leader. Right. He, he is the mastermind. And an influencer. Yeah, he's the mastermind <laughs> behind the entire plot, but 
Right. Charles Manson is not technically a murderer. Right, right. And then just, you know, they murdered the, you know, uh, Sharon Tate. Yep. And that crew during a party. I mean, basically, that's all I know. I mean. So do you know that it was charged by race is the real question. No, at all. Not at all. See, I think that's really interesting that yeah. most people don't know that it all started as a race war. Can you tell me more? And like a doomsday cult. Yeah. Like it started off as a, well, they when they got together, obviously, it was like hippie life. Woohoo. Yeah. You know, and then eventually he would make them, like, trip on LSD and, you know, get all... And then he would become, like, this, like... I don't know. I'm not very religious, so correct me if I'm wrong. Like a like a pastor or, like, a preacher. Like he a would, prophet, kind yeah, of. And he yeah, and he would say that he's speaking, like, about what's going to happen. Okay. Yeah, there was a lady with the name of uh, Diane Lake. She was only 14 years old when she met Manson. 14. And she joined this cult up at Spawn Ranch. Spawn Ranch was an old... TV and film set, and uh, she wrote a book, and she recalled how he Manson would give really, really long late night lectures after he told everyone to take LSD, mm. and he would talk about the past, present, and future of humanity, wow. and preach on it, and tell everyone what he said was going to happen. So, where does race come into play? Helter he, skelter. Okay. Yeah. He believed and preached that African Americans were going to wipe out white people. Yeah. Which is crazy. So he thought, like, he was scared of that and wanted to stop that. Right. So there was a lot of drugs involved. Right. So it that, was like, a race a war thing. thing. Okay. And then he actually told everyone in the country that they were going to go underground and they were going to wait and then they were going to rule whatever yeah. was left over. Yeah. He believed, after this. He also believed that. Um, African Americans weren't intelligent enough, so they would keep the Manson family and Charles Manson as the leader oh, or the master, whatever you refer yeah. to it as. So he thought, no matter what, they were going to be saved. So this is that commune. What was he? What happened to him before this? Right. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure he was in, he was in prison for quite some time even before this. Right. Yeah. What did he What did he do? So his, well, I can go all the way back. So let's start with, um, his mother was 16 years old when he was born. So she was young, wow. which is okay. You can have a baby whenever you want. Don't get me wrong. My mom was 16 when she had me. But, they, yeah, that's fine. Just saying. But I'm I mean, sure I'm not a serial killer, but I'm sure they, <laughs> not yet anyway. I'm sure your mom treated you lovely. Um, <laughs> Unlike. <laughs> so his mother cared more about petty crime and drinking and things like that. Like, she was an alcoholic, and she got herself into a lot of trouble, um, so she would do, like, le- like assault, like, you know, rob stores, whatever you want to say. And then um, eventually as time went on, she cared more about drinking than taking care of her kid. So then I like to call him Charlie. So Charlie Manson went to, um, like, live with his aunt and uncle for a while. And then um, after a little bit of time, he got himself into trouble. Mm-hmm. So he just followed right in her footsteps, started getting into petty crime at a young age, which usually kids that are young don't really do that right um and he got himself like into like all boys schools and which are known to be abusive in that correct like in that time so um he also got um institutionalized a lot too so by the time after like being arrested so and so as years went by he um they like kind of assume that it's around half of his life was spent institutionalized or in jail I was reading something that it said like before the murders, he was in jail about 20 years. Yep. Like, if you added it all together. Right. Yep. What was the one... See, he robbed... He stole a car or something, right? Yes. Yeah, so, um, he stole a car 
I'm assuming maybe when he was on parole. I don't really know for sure. But I know that he stole a car. He went over state lines, which is a federal crime. Mm-hmm. Yep. So since it's federal, he immediately got arrested. You know, they took him in. And then when he came in, they did, like, an, like a test to test his, like, IQ, whatever. They actually found from that test that he was illiterate. Yeah. But actually, his IQ was a 109. So mm-hmm. he was actually above average for an IQ. So that really stuck with me. And in prison is kind of where he learned guitar, right? Yep. Like he used That's that time to teach learned. himself guitar and he loved music. Yep. Does anyone know how... I know he befriended uh, Terry Meckler, yes. the music producer. How Correct. did he befriend him? Because he was in jail for so long. Um, I'm not entirely sure on the whole befriending situation, but my one Charles Manson fun fact connects to the Beach Boys through this connection. The drummer, correct? I believe it was the drummer. Um... So there was actually a whole bunch of music that Charlie had written with, the, I believe, the drummer from the Beach Boys. Um, and some of the music has actually been released as Beach Boys songs, but it's music that was actually yeah. written by no Charlie Manson. Wow. Yeah. And yes, he did not get any notoriety for it, which, evil mastermind, so like, kind of get why, but yeah. also like, still creative genius there. Yeah. Well, with an IQ that high, I mean, it sounds like... Which we were talking about before we were recording about there's a common theme with people that, that do this, that they're super high intelligent a lot yep. of the times and, you know, super creative and really smart minds. Insanely and, smart. Yeah. yeah. Which is cool. So I know why they met. Um, oh, you do? Yeah. So um, Susan, I think it was Susan Atkins was um, hitchhiking. Yes. And they picked her up and then they brought her back to... I'm assu- I don't know whose house it actually was, so mm-hmm. they brought him back to the house, and they all got to meet each other. Interesting. Yeah. And I know, I know, he, I know he had Terry Meckler at Spawn Ranch, mm-hmm. but just to listen to what he he called himself the Manson Family as yes. a band, and he, yeah. he actually listened to them play. And the song you're thinking of, Manson wrote a song called "Cease to Exist," yes, which they renamed "Never Learn Not to Love." It was considered a flop, but it turned into a Beach Boy song, and Manson had this idea that Meckler was going to have him become a music star. Yes, and that was he his really dream. That's thought. He, yeah, yeah. And then when you know, getting his hopes up, and then taking some of his music, and exactly, it to the Beach Boys and reworking it a little bit. Yep. So this just kind of sparked Manson's rage. I mean, Manson really wanted to be pandemonium. A music star. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what kind of sparked this whole rage, which I just repeated myself. Can, no. Can I ask a question about that? Yeah. Maybe you guys know, but and maybe you're getting there, Justin, but. To me, I feel like if you're trying so hard to be so famous or so popular and it doesn't happen for you or can't happen for you, was that then, that energy then put into building this ranch and this crew to murder? Well, he already had Because you got to get notoriety somewhere, right? Yeah, like, he already had the ranch. He already had some people. But I think he that's when he decided, you know what? I'm better than this. Mm-hmm. No one's, no one's going to use me ever again. Yeah. I'm going to be a leader. And that's when he kind of started this whole cult. He started recruiting more people and picking up more people. And California at the time was a place where young people flocked to to start yes. a new life. Right. And he took advantage of that. I mean, look at Diane Lake. I said she was 14 years old when she met him. Yep. He had a lot of young women come onto this ranch. And that's when he, he started these so-called preachings yeah. while people were on LSD and literally brainwashed Every Not only was it LSD, there. but they were also drinking tea made from the um, belladonna plant, I believe is what mm. it is, which is Deathly Nightshade, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the times they did not know that they were ingesting that. 
it would be brewed into a tea, and it does have a lot of... Well, he's lucky he didn't kill anyone. You take Like, psychedelic stuff. You die, yeah, and it's it's a psychedelic, and a lot of the time they would be ingesting it and have absolutely no idea. It was just served as a drink. And he had these people who would do whatever he said. They believed every single word he said, no matter how outrageous it was. The doomsday, the race war, the fact that mm-hmm. he was going to rule the end of the world. He then, what I'm going to assume is, he wanted them to kill Meckler. Meckler lived at 1050 Celio Drive. And on August 8th, he told his followers, go to this address and kill everyone there. But, because they were at Spawn Ranch and doing whatever they're doing, he didn't realize that Meckler actually moved out in January of that year. Yep. And that's when Sharon Tate and her husband actually rented that house. So the people that he actually wanted to kill weren't even there. So the Sharon Tate murders, the fact that she was killed was a complete... I mean, I don't want to say it. I mean, it was a mistake. It was an accident, in all honesty. I mean... He just said, go to this house and kill everyone that's there. And he really wanted Meckler to die and whoever else he had there. But Meckler wasn't there because he moved out eight months, seven, eight months prior. Let's talk a little bit about these murders. The people that went were Tex Watson, Susan Atkins... Mm -hmm. Patricia Krenwinkel and Linda Casbian. They're the ones that went and committed the murders. Mm-hmm. What's fascinating to me is that Tex Watson, was he the only man that was there or were there other men there? I believe he was the only I one. Think there was only one. Like, he was like his right hand man. Yeah. Almost. He was the one that was disgustingly brutal yeah. in these murders. He was the one that stabbed people multiple times, shot people multiple times. Mm-hmm. So they went to 1050 Celio Drive. Killed it. Everyone there. Sharon Tate and her friends, plus an 18-year-old that was just driving up the road. At plus the, the baby. The and, and the unborn right. baby. Yeah. And Sharon Tate's unborn baby. Yep. And then they just drove around, like, looking for another place to go. And then where did they end up? At the La Bianca's house. Did the La Biancas have anything to do with anything, or were they just a random kill? No, they were random. Um... It's reported that they were just driving around looking, and Charles Manson was there that night. They were driving around, and um, they stopped at a house. They walked up, looked inside, saw that they were sleeping, and just went in. You know, because the back door was unlocked. People didn't seem to be scared. And, um, yeah, they just, they covered their heads with pillowcases and went to town doing what they wanted to do. So, at Sharon Tate's place gruesome, gruesome murders, and then at La Bianca's they just suffocated them? No, they were stabbed with bayonets. Oh. Yeah. It was gnarly. Yeah. All right, so tell, tell me about it. So what, I, I didn't, like, I know about Sharon Tate, but okay. I, I, like, I knew it's the La Bianca's. because they were covered and they couldn't see what, what was, was going to happen. Yeah, they had no idea what was coming. Oh, they so were completely they, they went in the blindsided. house, put pillowcases over their head. Not, they didn't suffocate, they put pillowcases over their head and they just started stabbing them. Yeah. And well, they, were they just, killed the husband first and then they went after her. She was back in the bedroom. She he was just a grocery off. store owner, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's there's not really that much that I had on them other than that Rosemary was her name, the wife. She fought back. She tried to fight back. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they wound up stabbing her with the bayonet. And um, then when they were dead, they wrote Rise. They wrote Death to Pigs, and they wrote Helter Skelter on the refrigerator door. That's crazy. Yeah. 
So you don't hear much about the other family. No, you only really no. hear no, about... because Sharon Tate was famous. Yeah. was famous, were, right. Right. But you don't really hear about it. The other, and it sounds just right. as gruesome. But I guess yeah. recently, uh, I guess Zach Baggins from Ghost Adventures bought the house and then just resold it. Right. Yeah, I think you were looking at that a little bit. You're yeah. a realtor, so you, were, of course, you would look <laughs> at that part of it. I love that stuff. <laughs> but I was interested to know like what it costs and you know that sort of thing. And you know, in the so, part of California that it's in, you know, the houses go for thirty, forty million dollars. You right. know, and this was just in 2019. You'd think it'd be millions. I was surprised to find out that it was sold for 1.9 million That's or 1.98 million, which is a lot of money to you and I. But for you know that particular area, That's not that much. it's not no. that much. So I wondered why it sold so less and or for, for so little money and why it didn't sell for more. But I, there is a stigma with murdered houses, right? right. And so so you're a realtor. <laughs> I am. Have you had have you had any houses that you had to try to sell that had murder in it? Or did you have a client try to buy a house that had a murder in it? Yes. So, I mean, do you want to go off into this tangent? Absolutely. I mean, let's, let's, let's hear about that and then we'll kind of come, come back? back. But I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, there were two houses. So there was a house in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where um, I didn't have the listing, but I had buyers that called me and said, I want to go see this cute little Cape Cod house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked, and I had just started my career at that point. So we're talking 10 years ago or so. Um, and you look it up on, on our multi-listing service where you see all the houses and it right. says, you know, please Google this article, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't know enough to do that. So I said, yeah, let's go see it. So we went to see it and adorable little white Cape Cod. You walk in completely empty, completely vacant. There's a big cutout in the living room floor. Um, and then it's covered like hardwood floors yeah. covered with a piece of plywood and then a big cutout, probably the size of this sound barrier that's on your wall here. And covered with a piece of um, plywood, but lower on the ground. So my clients are like, I love this house. It's really great. Can you find out a little bit more about it? And, you know, we'd like to make an offer. Went home, did the Google of the article. There was a woman that lived there, and she happened to pick up um, or be interested in a guy that was in the neighborhood um, who she, we later find out that he was homeless, went into the house, killed her, cut her in a bunch of pieces, put her in a bunch of bags and put her in those spots where the plywood was in the walls oh until they came God. and found her. So it's, you know, it's a stigmatized property after that. Yep. Really hard. Typically they knock them down. So I guess if, if a gruesome murder like that happens, you have to disclose that, right? There's, there's a controversy around it. So when you are a budding realtor, they tell you that if there's a murder or a suicide in the property, you have to disclose it. If you talk to a lot of brokers... It's not legally true. Y- yeah, they are telling you that you don't have to disclose What if it, it was a headline in the newspaper? Tip- if it becomes public knowledge, then you have to disclose it, don't you? It's not that you have to disclose it, but it's in your best interest as a real estate agent to disclose it. because That point gets into ethics. Well, and if you sell a house and then your clients say, you knew this... Why didn't you tell me this? And now I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. It could take you to litigation and that sucks. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. That's different in each state though, right? Mm -hmm. So did you happen to find out what any of the laws were in uh, California? I didn't. Okay. No, I I was interested to see if that was something that I can look. I know some states have a haunting law. There is. actually recognize if a house is haunted, you have to disclose it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we have that here in Pennsylvania. We don't. Yeah. And it's really interesting because, like, personally, There's I lot, would like, not buy is... a house without finding out what happened right. in it first. I mean, it's an old, it's, this is an old state, like, of obviously yeah. tons of haunted places around here. Yeah. I, I've also had two other houses, again, where um, one I was the listing agent and one I was the buyer's agent, where two separate houses, two separate families, where the fathers both killed themselves in the house. Wow. And not very long after, moms died. 
you know, not in like unusual ways, but yeah. like young enough to go like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. That's crazy. Of natural causes or heart attacks or something or whatever it is, or other family members also died after dad died. One was huh. inside of a house where he shot himself in the closet. One was Jeez. outside of a house where he shot himself in the shed. Wow. So just crazy stuff like that. That's great. I was just curious because I know that house recent. It was recent that that house kind of sold and yeah, uh, for sale. It's crazy how low it was because, like I said, stigmatism around having I a place guess. where people were murdered. Yeah, I mean, even the square footage of, of the house is lower. It's typically, you know, in that area, three thousand square feet is huge. Yeah, you know, and the price of those properties, especially in the hills, is like thirty million dollars. Right. But one point nine, you would think that somebody would buy it for just the. Excitement purposes, like somebody like Zach who wanted to buy it would have yeah, more money. Yeah, that's to buy what it. I would assume. But yeah, no, one point nine eight million, and he said he bought it because he liked the views. <laughs> Let's go back to the murders. I'm gonna kind of, I'm gonna describe a little bit about what happened. I'm okay. gonna get into some gruesome details. Hence the uh, disclaimer. Trigger that warning. Was at the beginning of this episode. So if you are a young listener, I strongly suggest to uh, turn your ears away or what's about to happen because the murders that took place were extremely gruesome. Alright, so as I said, the murderers were Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and the driver was Linda Kasbin. Linda did not kill anybody. No. Linda was just a driver. She actually was horrified at what was going on. Charles tells them, go to this house, kill everyone. So they head to 1050 Celio Drive, which is now occupied by Sharon Tate and her husband. Yep. So Sharon Tate was hosting a small dinner party with her friends. Her husband, Roman Polanski, was actually not there. He was out filming. Um, but she was there with Jay Sebring, her hairstylist, who she actually once dated. And Polanski's friend, Bocek Frakowski, was there with his partner, Abigail Folger, who was wealthy and uh, the heiress to the Folger coffee fortune. Okay. Yeah. So they were just having a little dinner party, right? And that's when Manson's people came up to the gates and started going up to the house. They had a parked car further down the driveway. And they started making their way up to the house. They cut the phone line connected to the house. While they, while they were entering the grounds, headlights flashed from an approaching vehicle. Watson stepped in front of the car and aimed his revolver at the 18-year-old Stephen Parent and shot him four times. His lifeless body just slunched over in the car. He was just living in the guest house the rear of the property. He was probably leaving. Watson's probably didn't have to kill him. They kind of just hid and waited for the car to go down the driveway. Yeah. But he stepped out, killed him. Then they reached the house. Watson crawled through a window and let two of the women in right through the front door. And Caspian, uh, Linda Caspian, was actually keeping watch by the front gates with the car. So the rest of them into the house. At this point, Frakowski was asleep on the living room couch and awakened with a swift kick to the head. And then he asked what Watson was doing in the house. And Watson replied with this quote. I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Something incredibly wrong with this guy. <laughs> Clearly. Just a bit. The three others were dragged into the living room and tied up. Sharon Tate and Sebring were tied together by their necks with rope, which was hung over the ceiling beams. They weren't choking to death, nope. but at least uncomfortable enough that they couldn't 
scream. Sebring protested this treatment of Sharon because she was pregnant. And, well, Watson didn't want to hear it. Shot him. He didn't die yet. Folger was ordered into one of the bedrooms to fetch her purse, which contained $70. But Watson was distracted by Sebring's groans. Sebring wasn't dead yet. So he came back into the living room, stabbed him seven times. Sharon Tate was hung by her neck with Sebring. Well, Watson stabbed him seven times. Caspian came up the driveway. She started running to the house, and she saw what was what was happening, and she wanted it to stop. She, she wanted it to stop. She actually testified in court yes. against everybody. She did. Bad bitch why, Yeah, I mean, <laughs> why she decided to go with this, I think it had to do because she had a daughter back at the ranch. She knew that if she didn't cooperate, something was going to happen. Well, she did get back in the car to leave, and then she didn't leave because of her daughter. Correct. Because she was worried that... Correct. She she wanted nothing to do with this. Like, if she went back to the ranch, they would know something was up and they would do something to her daughter? Yeah, she was worried that if she left, they would go back and harm her daughter. Uh So she stayed and she went back up to try to get them to stop again. Wow. At this point, Frakowski had managed to free his arms from the towel they tied him up with and lunged at Atkins. She stabbed him in the leg with a butcher's knife, but he managed to struggle out the front door. And that's where he saw Caspian, who was entering, and saw the manslaughter that was happening. He had blood all over his face, standing by a post. They looked into each other's eyes, and she said, Oh God, I'm so sorry. Please, make it stop! But then he just fell to the ground in the bushes. Still not dead yet, though. Nope. That guy. Watson gave chase and knocked him out with the butt of his revolver, and then stabbed him numerous times and shooting his body twice. And still, this guy was alive. Kasman was horrified as to what was occurring, and that's when she decided to, like, I'm out of here, right? She went to the car, and that's when she decided, I, if I leave, what, what would I do to my daughter? Yep. Folger escaped through the bedroom window and ran towards the pool area. Krenwinkel gave chase, and the pair ended up in the front lawn where Krenwinkel tackled her to the ground stabbing her several times. But here comes Crazy Watson. He steps in to finish the job, stabbing her 28 times. Mm-hmm. Kowski, still alive, was crawling across the lawn. Oh. And this guy was inches from death. Watson finally came over and killed him with a flurry of more stabs. So the killers went back into the house. And Sharon Tate was still alive. It's not said who killed Sharon Tate, but I think it was Watson just because how gruesome he's been, how many times he stabbed and shot people. But Sharon Tate was stabbed 16 times, and an unborn child was crudely cut out of her body. Ah! And that's when it was Watson, right? That took the towel, dipped it in Sharon Tate's blood, and he wrote what on the door? Pig. 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 It's just crazy and how gruesome these murders were. How many months pregnant was she? Do we know? Eight and a half. So she was almost she was full term. Yeah. Wow. She, she begged for them to at least keep her alive long enough so she could have a child. 
Yeah, that's the most intense part to me. Like somebody's that you know you murder yeah. somebody. You hear about that all the time, but when you cut out a baby, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> Let's take a little break. We gather ourselves. This is pretty emotional story, and you know, so we'll come back. We'll touch on the hauntings now that have taken place as a result. <laughs> Ghost Encounters Podcast is sponsored by the Eric Ledbetter team with Iron Valley Real Estate. Contact the Eric Ledbetter team for all your real estate needs. Visit theericledbetterteam.com. Also sponsored by Phoenix Fire Media. Bring the heat to your competition with expert marketing, photography, and video production. Visit phoenixfiremedia.com. Welcome back. We were just discussing the gruesome details of the Manson family murders and what happened to Sharon Tate. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what happened after these murders. I mean, the house was still there. So I know what happened years later, but I think, Jordan, you were telling me a little bit earlier. Can you touch on, like, what happened soon after the murders? I mean, the house was still there. Did someone buy it? What happened? Um, so a guy from Nine Inch Nails. I'm not sure who he was in the band. I just know that he's Nine Inch Nails. Um, he moved in. And he um, kind of enjoyed, like, talking about the fact that it was a house that had murderers involved. So he actually nicknamed, like, the studio and stuff, Pig and all that stuff. So Sharon Tate's sister got involved and, you know, called him names, told him he needs to take it seriously. Pretty much called him out for yeah. naming the studio that yeah. he built in this house where her sister died, Pig, because Pig was written on the door. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a yeah. number of songs and albums were recorded in the studio. Uh, Marilyn Manson recorded some stuff in the studio. Yeah. So what happened after she called him out? Um, so he did like a public apology. Um, he said he didn't want to be known as somebody that would be ignorant and foolish like that. Um, and then a little bit after, it wasn't much after that that he actually moved out, but he took the front door with him. So I'm That's not sure if he still has it, but I know he left with it. That's crazy. I, I think I was reading somewhere he took the front door and it's now at his current studio, which I don't know where it is, but... I brought it there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know, but I knew he took it. That's crazy. I think it's really interesting. I I don't want to glorify him naming his studio after the murder scene, but I do think it's pretty interesting that he did take the door. That's probably something I would have done too. Yeah. I know people are really iffy on taking serial killers memorabilia and stuff, but that that's probably something I would have done too. Well, and it was Trent Reznor who was the lead man. The lead guy for Nine Inch Nails. Oh, he oh, is Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. that. I just well, knew yeah. it was. Yeah, and he owned the house, I think, until 93, and then it was demolished. Yeah, so the house was demolished in 1994. Mm-hmm. Just completely taken down. I mean, seriously, I, who would want to live in a house where no. like, those gruesome murders took place? And imagine how hard it would be to sell a place like that. <laughs> right. I know, but I feel like it's almost part of history. It would be. I, I mean, it it is, it's not gruesome, but, but it would be cool to right. have it still intact. Right. There's a market for anything. Yeah. I'll just put that out there. <laughs> yeah, they could have done something cool with it, like made it like, not like a museum, but like made it like a tourist thing because they have like all of those places that are haunted in New Orleans. All mm-hmm. of those are, they're right. all open for the public right. and that's I mean, where they, they could crazy. have made it. They could have made it into like a shrine for Sharon Tate. Exactly. They could, have, a they could have. A foundation. Yeah. yeah. They could anything. have created something to like kind of it. completely change the name of this gruesome house. Yeah. But I wonder if the hauntings had something to do with them tearing it down. Like there was just so much activity or so much story around I didn't it. read anything about the Nine Inch Nails guy claiming any hauntings, but I'm sure there was. I mean, he did say something that the house kind of changed him a bit. Yeah. I, mean, I could imagine the horrible 
vibe and dark shadow that's over that house. Yeah. Oh, there's definitely have to be some bad vibes in there. Yeah, but it was demolished in 1994, and it was just a vacant piece of land. And still no one wanted it, because they knew, everyone knew, you know, what took place. And then a man by the name of David Omen bought the land in 2002. He was like, wow, this is a great price in this area of California. He thought he got a bargain. It was only $40,000. That's it? Yeah. In the hills? Yeah. But he got a lot more than he bargained for. He bought a bad omen, if you will. Uh, yeah, it's just weird that his last name was Omen. It really is. <laughs> what I'm about to describe happened, but uh, yeah, he uh, wanted to build his dream house, and that's what he wanted. But uh, even during the beginning stages of the building process, workers would be at this place starting to build this build this house, and they would hear voices. No one was around. We'd hear whispers. On hot California days, they would get this cold chill in the back of their neck. Their hairs would stand up and send a chill down their spine. Couldn't explain it. And even as the house progressed, they would hear clunky footsteps on the floorboards of a brand new house. Someone walking around. It's crazy how even the contractors, the builders, started experiencing things. It wasn't it, the house isn't built on the exact same spot that the previous house was, but it's only like sixty feet away. Yeah. Well, wasn't there also stories about him having parties and glasses yeah. flying off shelves, stuff like that? So, David Omen, the house is finally built, brings in furniture. The house is pretty much ready. He decides to have a housewarming party. He's inviting guests, and he's set up for the party, and all of a sudden he hears, knocks at the door. Well, he's thinking it's too early for anyone to be here, but maybe someone's just showing up early. So he goes to the front door, opens it up, no one's there. Maybe he imagined it. Maybe it was in his head. Maybe he was just so excited for people to come that he just heard a knock at the door. So closed it, goes back, putting out hors d'oeuvres and glasses and things like that, and then... Alright, someone's gotta be here now. Right? I definitely heard that. He definitely heard that. So he goes back to the front door, opens it up, nothing. No lights down the driveway, no one's around. Doesn't think much into it, finally people start showing up, party's going on, seems fun. One of his guests sees a man outside passing by the kitchen window. But here's the problem. The kitchen window's ten meters off the ground. There's no way. Unless you were 10 meters tall or floating, essentially. The wine's flowing, everyone's having a good time. And like you said, one of the wine glasses actually ends up smashing against the wall. Everyone hears it and just completely shatters. But that was just the first party he ever had. And people are already seeing and hearing things. But it just progresses as he further lives in this house. Did he know at this point the property that he purchased? He did know. Okay. He did find out. He did know. Okay. So he knew that when he bought the land? I don't know if he knew it when he bought the land, because I don't think he was from the area. Okay. But he eventually did find out that there was a house here, and he found out. What the happened? Gru- the gruesome murder. Okay. Happening. But again, it's not like it was the same house. It's not no. like it's built yeah. on the same exact spot. Mm-hmm. But yet these things are happening, right? His wife or girlfriend at the time, she was going to the bedroom, and she 
see someone. She thinks it's him. And she turns the light and poof, gone. The, I think the moment that David Owen finally got terrified was he was laying in bed and then he wakes up and he sees a person at the foot of his bed. And the person just points down towards the driveway three nope. times. Mm-mm. Points. <laughs> points so. in the exact direction where the original murders took place 60 feet away. That's creepy. That's creepy. So, yeah, I'd be pretty I mean, upset if like a ghost tried to find that out. Yeah, so, like, I didn't need to know all that. Like, I'm <laughs> just trying to take a nap, so like, if you could... Good night. <laughs> but things kept happening. He would have guests over and the projector where he, they watch movies would turn on and off and he'd hear voices and get chills and stuff would move and fly off the shelves and that kind of stuff happened. If, you know, it's, it's crazy that it's not even the same house and yet these spirits are still trying to reach yeah. out. You know, like almost like, please hear us. Is someone there? Like, just listen yeah. to what to say. Being a paranormal investigator, I always found that the more tragic a situation was, the more paranormal activity there is. Oh, I believe that 100%. 100%. I mean, yeah. Look at the investigation we were on. We were, we'll talk about this in another episode, but we were at the Weaversville Inn where it was used as a brothel. Top floors for the higher paying men with bedrooms, and the okay. basement was for lower class, and horrible things happened to women down there. And yeah. I didn't even want to go back to that basement, to be honest. Neither do I. <laughs> right. It's just—it's crazy how the more, the more horrible, the more gruesome, the more uh, tragedy that took place, the more paranormal happens there. The stronger the entities are, it's this dark cloud that just hangs over. And I strongly believe that this negative energy is what holds spirits here. I feel like that would be a great explanation because we really don't have anything else right. that would be like, okay, but why would some people or some spirits stick here and others don't? Exactly. Makes sense. Is there any like ghost like hunts that happen there, like that they knew like who it is haunting? Like? So Zach Baggins did go there, Ghost Adventures. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, probably should have watched the episode before this, but I didn't, didn't even know they went there. <laughs> I know he went there, but I'm not exactly sure what they found. But it's it's gotta be it's gotta be done. It has to. I mean, <laughs> who else? Literally, <laughs> like I think one of his guests actually saw like a bloody figure. I mean, as they all oh have been God. bloody, they're all stabbed and shot half times. Yeah. You know? It's just crazy. Another big serial killer after Manson was Richard Ramirez. The Night Stalker. Yeah. I don't know a whole lot about Richard Ramirez. Maybe the two of you could give a little more detail. I know his childhood was messed up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I know... In lack of better words. <laughs> <laughs> The lack of childhood he had. Yeah. His, I I believe at a young age, it was his sister's boyfriend or sister's husband. It was his sister's husband that was the peeping Tom. Mm -hmm. And kind of like taught him and drove around with him. That's just disgusting. And his cousin was the um, one that was in Vietnam. And he did some crazy stuff. Right. His his cousin was a Green Beret. Yeah. And showed him disgusting pictures. And yes. Yeah. Taught him how to fight and just mm-hmm. like. He showed pictures of tying the locals, like women, up to trees. He had pictures of rape, like how he raped them. He had pictures of how he murdered them and like their murders were because he beheaded them. So then he took pictures of him posing with their heads. Imagine showing that to a young child. Exactly. Yeah, he was like eight or nine, I believe, yeah. when that was going on. Which is insane because that's the age of my sister, and half the time I, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I'm letting you watch, 
reality television with me, let alone dead bodies. And then his cousin actually ended up killing his wife, yep. right? While Correct. Ramirez was there. Yes. He saw the whole thing. He saw the whole thing. Mm-hmm. He Imagine was being he, that young and just being... He was really young at the time, yeah. wasn't he? And he and he talked about it and he said that he didn't think anything like that was like weird. Like he didn't find it like traumatizing or anything. He just it was all a norm to him. But Everything I think like that was being normal. exposed to that kind of horrible stuff at such a young age, you kinda of just it becomes second nature. It does. Yeah. yeah. Well he started using marijuana and drinking alcohol at the age of ten. Ten. Yeah, and then he started using LSD at fourteen. Wow. So then that led to more drugs and drugs and drugs, and you know, eventually he went to California after so and so many years. So we have this common denominator yeah. of childhood trauma and drug use. Yeah, <laughs> and California and, and California. California. And let me add that his um, cousin got off on insanity. His cousin got. Mm-hmm. So his cousin. Kills his wife. That was my stomach. So his cousin kills his wife. Yeah, with and gets with like what? shot her in the face. And he gets off on insanity. Yep, because of post-traumatic stress from the war. Jeez. Yeah. Well, he caused his own post-traumatic stress by the beheadings, and uh, I mean, yeah. if you're gonna take pictures with the with the head, you're enjoying what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yep. You know. Uh, so, how many people did he actually kill? Or how many people was he convicted of killing, and how many people does he say he actually killed? That's a fantastic question. I know that it was over 15 victims. Yeah, I want to say it was like 17 or 18. Um, But I know he was convicted of, um, I want to say it was 13 counts of murder, 5 attempt murder, 11 um, like sexual assault, and then it was the last couple counts were burglary. So he had a wide range in. 19 death sentences is what he was. That's crazy. Yeah, it just says 15 plus for his victims mm-hmm. because they really don't. I don't think don't. he had a particular motive or a particular way of killing people. It was No, it was profile. really all over the place. Yeah, and um, I think that's why it was hard for them to like pinpoint him. him. Yeah. Well, it was really hard. He started with stabbings. It was a lot of stabbings and um, much more... Like, random kind of jumping into your home, killing you while you're asleep, and leaving. And then as it progressed, it turned into him lingering after the murders. He'd go and make food in their kitchens and, like, hang out, watch TV. Because he was homeless, too. He had nowhere else to go. So while he is doing all of this... But, yeah, so the murders, they progressed. And it was very hard to try and pinpoint, like... Is this one person? Is this multiple perpetrators? Because it started with stabbings, and then it was shootings, and then it was sexual assaults, and then it was two people that were being killed in the home, and it was a husband and a wife where he'd leave one person alive and the other one's dead. It was just such a mess for the police to try and figure out there was no set motive. Mm -hmm. It was just to cause as much chaos and destruction as he could, and he did a really good job at it. What else can you tell me about Ramirez? I don't know. I know he just killed random people and used random objects, but what else can you tell me? Well, right after, like I said, he started using um, LSD at 14. That was around the time that he started dabbling in, like, Satanism and the occult. Like, that's when he really got interested in everything like that. So then when he went to California, that's where everything... He had it in his his mind that what he was doing was for Satan. Mm -hmm. So that's why things were so sporadic and, you know... 
He just had to do what he had to do. The devil told him to do it. Yeah. was a big thing. And he wow. carved a pentagram in his hand during his court hearing and... In the court hearing. He walked into the court hearing like that, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And showed it. Yeah, yeah and showed it off. Famously he a would picture, constantly yeah. paint pentagrams, specifically inverted pentagrams, on walls in his victim's blood just to make it a point that the devil is the reason he's doing this and that he can't stop himself because it's what the devil wanted. After um, he killed a couple of the women, he carved it in their thighs too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he also dead. carved it on the wall or wrote it on the wall of the Cecil Hotel when he stayed there. He did stay he did. at the Cecil Hotel. He did, yes. He did. And he, he did leave a pentagram behind there as well just to make it known that he was there. How did he get caught? So, it all comes back to a sneaker. Um, He had left shoe prints at all of the crime scenes, which is how they were able to link him to everything. It was a very specific, I believe, Avia sneaker that they had to track down to a whole bunch of different stores in California. Um, I forget how they actually got him, though. So, um, his last... Murder, which is what I was going to get to. I was going to talk about the first murder and the last murder, but since we're on the topic, um, he went to Bill Carnes and I want to say it's Inez, I-N-E-Z, Erickson, um, their home, Mm -hmm. and um, as soon as he got in there, because, you know, for some reason these people leave their back doors open, so he just walks in. Mm -hmm. Or he goes through their open windows, um, and he shot him right away, got rid of him, and then um, he went after her. You know, he... Yes. This is one that really stuck out like stuck out for me because he talked a lot about Satan when he was like beating her. Mm-hmm. She had to swear on Satan that she loved Satan um while he was beating her up. Um then he raped her and after he raped her he took her jewelry, her money, whatever whatever valuables he could find. Mm-hmm. And then he made her swear on Satan again saying you have to swear that there's nothing left in this house for me to take. And then he left her alive. Yep. Interesting. And on the way out, I have a quote. He said, um, tell them that the Night Stalker was here. Interesting. Yeah. So then obviously, and believe it or not, um, actually, the guy I think lived. He had two bullets removed from his head, Mm -hmm. I think. Oh, crap. Yeah. He had, out of the three, I think he had two removed and he lived. Um, They both lived and they were able to say that... um, who he was and like describe him and the people actually caught him before the police did on the street yeah they yep. caught him yeah. in the street oh. and, and like pinned him and beat the out crap out of him <laughs> it was really funny it, it was in new york wasn't it um i'm not sure where it was i but. believe it was in new york and or, no maybe it was still on the west coast but it was a it was in a city let's just yeah. be broad it was in populated. a very populated city and someone had turned around and recognized him and was like that's him! And mm-hmm. everyone just dropped whatever they were doing. There were people getting off of buses yeah. and were like, let's get him, let's get him. To the right. point where when the police got there, they actually hesitated in arresting him and were like, should we just see if right. so they, yeah. they just the finish, finish this for us yeah. or do we actually have to take him in? Um, but inevitably, they did end up taking him in. So, how did he die? He, died from, he died from B-cell lymphoma before. He was on death row. Yeah, there you go. He was on death row. Well, yeah. He was on death row for 23 years. So California eventually got rid of the death penalty. Hence it why did. Manson never got killed. He died in prison. Died in hence prison. Hence why uh, Ramirez died in prison. Ramirez he was, was get, supposed what, to get gas? the gas chamber. 
Yeah, what he was he? sentenced to 19 death sentence consecutively, which... <sighs> Crazy. Did he have any emotion that he was... No, he had no remorse for the killings. And a, a couple times at the end as he was walking out, he would yell, Hell, Hell Satan, right in front of everybody. Yeah. What did he, he didn't care. What did he say when they were like, going to the gas chambers? Oh, he said, um, it comes with the territory, I'll see you in Disneyland. He just didn't care. <laughs> he didn't give up. Yeah, he did. I'm gonna say care. he didn't give a fuck. Like, he didn't he... Care. So he died of what? B cell lymphoma. What is that? Um, I'm not exactly sure. A type of cancer. I don't know. He oh. he had complications with it, just like how Charles Manson died from complications with like respiratory failure, heart, uh, cardiac arrest. I wonder if it had anything to do with his damn teeth. <laughs> Maybe he had some gnarly teeth. His teeth were. Have you ever seen his teeth? Quick pause. I, have you seen his teeth? Ramirez? Yeah. I've seen the movies of him. I mean, oh, oh, hold on. I so want we're this. Gonna, we're going to look at a picture of his teeth. I suggest <laughs> you, guys you all see take a break, yeah. hit pause, and go look at a picture of his teeth. <laughs> it's already in my search history. Don't worry about it. Uh, this was his, the, this. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. They were gnarly. That's like a um, part of his identification. Right. Why <laughs> were his teeth? I'm sorry, but why does he look like Shmuel? <laughs> Yeah, it was really bad. Um, there were allotments. I mean, sure, they were constantly I'm sure infected. Some of the drug usage. Oh, the yeah. drug use. Apparently, he had gnarly teeth from well, a very young age. And you don't go yeah, to the dentist, you know? um, I'm sure his parents didn't take care of him. Right. So. Yeah, but it was. I don't know was, anything about his mom. I don't know anything about his mom. I just know that his mom dressed him in uh, women's clothing while he was younger. Um, which, like, no problem there if that's what you want to do. But being forced to wear. Clothes, you don't. Then they get confused and they don't understand. Yeah, right. Um, they're not with the social. It's not with the social norm. He just had a really messed up. Job. He did. He, he did. Was, which he was definitely a product of his environment. Unfortunately, not condoning any of the god awful things that he had done. But yeah, which right. brings up one of my favorite things is when he um, was taken to jail and they were doing a mental evaluation on him. His psychiatrist referred to him as as like a made psychopath, not a born psychopath. And that really stuck with me that he used those kinds of things. Like they they talk about when he um he had head injuries before mm-hmm. six and all of that other stuff that could lead to all of the issues that he was going through. So head yeah. injuries plus the I mean I'm gonna call it child environment. abuse. Yeah, I call was, it the, the environment. environment. Yeah, trauma. Yeah. Trauma yeah. kind of made him to what he was. Yeah, that's crazy. But I think one of the most important things to state at the end of this is that you cannot blame Satanism on your <laughs> evil tendencies and you can blame the occult and being possessed as much as you want, but Satanism is a real religion and it is not murdering people and don't let Richard Ramirez tell you that that is a thing to do for religion. I mean, I don't think anyone should get any facts or information from a serial killer. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's try not to follow those facts. Yeah. I mean, look what happened when people followed facts from Manson. Yeah, how about it? rough time. So this was a bit of a longer episode, but we touched a lot. I mean, California has been involved with a whole bunch of awful tragedies throughout the years. Oh, yeah. And these are just two of the people that, that caused them. But we did mention that Richard Ramirez stayed at the Cecil Hotel. And dun, dun, dun. that's another place in California where that is horrible indeed. things happen. I want to go so bad. Let's I do it. Could. Right, let's go. I all say right. it all let's the time. I think the next episode should be about the Cecil Hotel. Okay. We could talk about what Ramirez did, talk about the first killing that took place and things that happen now. I, I mean, that place Elisa. Is, yeah, Elisa, yeah. I am. That place is 
so infamously known for women dying in the hotel. Yeah. And of course, the Elisa Lamb thing that was so strange. I mean, Jordan was telling me facts about that and what what it had to do with the. Uh... There was a tuberculosis outbreak. Mm-hmm. Right. A couple, like literally days, like so she was like bound on the 19th of February and then on the 22nd there was a huge tuberculosis outbreak a TB outbreak on right. Skid Row and her name yep. has something to do with how they test it does for it's exact it's the test it's her name right yeah. but but not let's not get into yeah. that right now so much. Oh. we're gonna really, it, it's so interesting let's get into a whole episode of that next time please Jordan I'm gonna yes. have you on again thank you so much for coming thanks yes. Jordan thank you for joining us it yeah. alright we'll be back next time stay spooky stay terrified Please lock your doors. Stay cool. Ah!